Welcome to a new series of Life Solved from the University of Portsmouth. In this podcast, we're exploring how research taking place here is changing how we live in and think about our world. This time, some big questions. Really what paleontologists are doing ultimately is piecing together the most incredible, awe-inspiring story out there, the history of life on planet Earth, right? It's an incredible sequence of events. From the discovery of a new dinosaur species to rethinking life on Earth, we're finding out how paleontology is bringing the past to life and helping us better understand our natural world today. In the late 1970s, a stretch of cliff along the coast of Brystone on the Isle of Wight was crumbling. In some particularly poor weather, the soft cliffs were giving way with clumps of rock falling into the bay below. This was part of the Wessex Formation, a stretch of mudstone and sandstone found in Dorset and southern parts of the Isle of Wight. Paleontologists eagerly awaited the secrets it would reveal. There was quite a big cliff fall not long after that. A huge amount of bones started to appear, which were two animals. There was Neovenator, a huge theropod, a huge meat-eating dinosaur, and there was this Iguanodontian. Two collections of fossilized dinosaur bones were collected along this coastline, the crumbling geology opening up a treasure trove hundreds of thousands of years old. Amateur paleontologists Keith and Jenny Simmons followed up on the dig. The excavation went on for years because they had to sort of dig back into the cliff and there was quite a lot of overburden. And so they were almost waiting for the sea to sometimes take things back a bit, you know, to, in order to dig further into it. Keith Simmons documented these and made detailed field notes of everything. And eventually they came to the museum with Neovenator, the big meat-eating dinosaur. Prior to this, for 100 years, only two kinds of dinosaur had been identified on the Isle of Wight. The plant-eating Iguanodon bernicitensis and Mantellosaurus arthurfieldensis. Neovenator excited scientists and the public alike. But what about the other skeleton? Painstakingly recovered boxes of the bones collected were safely placed in storage for the Isle of Wight's dedicated museum, Dinosaur Isle, with key pieces placed on show to the public. The majority of the collection remained safely stowed for more than three decades, until this man came along. My name's Jeremy Lockwood. My main interests are in dinosaurs, particularly iguanodontians on the Isle of Wight. Those are those big herbivores with their spiky thumbs. Jeremy is a retired GP who turned his passion for paleontology into a PhD after moving to the Isle of Wight. The COVID-19 lockdown of 2020 meant many of us were hampered in our work, but not so for Jeremy. Embarking on his research with the University of Portsmouth and the Natural History Museum, he found himself tracing through the collections of the Dinosaur Isle Museum intrigued by the other skeleton unearthed in Brystone all those years ago. For a long time, it had been assumed this was a specimen of Mantellosaurus. But something didn't add up. We could see it had got 
more teeth than any other iguanodontian around that time in the early Cretaceous. So as a researcher, I thought that I really need to go through every bone, seriously, every bone of an iguanodontian and just look at it and document it and photograph it. So I started that process and I had photographed the nasal bone of this dinosaur some time before, but I hadn't just put it into the right position. And it, it was only when I was trying to reconstruct this as a skull, I suddenly thought, oh, goodness me, this, is, this has got a bulge on it, which was really quite significant because Iguanodon and Mantellosaurus had got straight noses. And actually the nasal bone had a process, an anterior ventral process, which is not found in Mantellosaurus or Iguanodons. Only by documenting in fine detail these other bones did Jeremy uncover a secret that made him sit up straight. So I looked at it and I thought, you know, this, this is strange. Am I imagining this? It was just too rounded and perfect, you know, to be distorted. It didn't look distorted. There were no cracks or fractures. I rushed out to another room where Martin Munt, who was the curator of the museum, was doing some work on some other material. I said, come over, come on, come on, come back. <laughs> and I said, look at this, look at this. Does it, does it appear to you to be a bulge on this nose? And he said, yes, I, I can't see it being anything else. So that's what really made it a really good day for me because I thought, you know, that no one can really argue with this. This is so different from what we know is on the island. We must have a new species here. That's how, in 2020, Jeremy realised he'd identified an entirely new type of dinosaur. After several agonising months of writing up his research with photographs and detailed geological descriptions, Jeremy finally presented his findings to the world, and Brystonia simonsi was declared a species. You submit your paper and it goes to peer review, so this will be then looked at by leading experts in the world who would have to agree or not agree what you're saying in your paper is correct or not. So luckily for me, they came back with very nice comments, totally agreeing that, that this was definitely a new species. For me, the really nice moment was going on to ZooBank where you register new species and actually typing it in and clicking it in and thinking there is a new species there now that I've actually just typed into this sort of international database. That was, that was great fun. Jeremy's story is all the more remarkable because it's an example of one PhD student's curiosity leading them straight to an amazing discovery. Lo and behold, you might well find a, a new species just hiding in a museum drawer. That's Dave Martill. He's Professor of Paleobiology at the University of Portsmouth, and he's fascinated by pterosaurs and dinosaurs. Dave's been with the university for 27 years. He says museums can hold the key for students like Jeremy to make incredible discoveries. One of our field trips for the undergraduate students is to take them to the Isle of Wight and also to Dinosaur Isle to see some of the, the pretty spectacular fossils that they have there. But we also go there because they have collections and every now and then we find bones that we need to compare with other material. Uh, and sometimes they have in their collections specimens that have not been studied and we sometimes make discoveries just simply by pulling open museum drawers looking at material in there and going oh this is this is unusual this is interesting never seen this before jeremy collared me 
I think it was at Dinosaur Isle, at Sandown on the Isle of Wight, and uh, he was wondering if it might be possible for him to do a PhD, and uh, I was very, very glad to, to take him on board. At the weekends, I would, uh, certainly at the half-terms, beetle down to the Isle of Wight to start collecting fossils. When I visited the Isle of Wight, it just I just found these, um, at Hanover Point, these huge dinosaur footprints, and it just sort of relit this fascination that I had as when I was a child for, for paleontology. So we kept coming down here, and I, I, I started a, a charity to support the local museum, the Friends of Dinosaur Arm Museums. Museums play an absolutely crucial role in connecting amateur enthusiasts, the general public, and academic researchers to cutting-edge discoveries just like this one here in the Isle of Wight. Here at Portsmouth, we use the Isle of Wight, both the museum and all of the field localities, for teaching. It's a very, very important locality for us. We're very fortunate that the Isle of Wight is, is on our doorstep. And we involve students in dinosaur digs, uh, but particularly we have dinosaurs being worked on by our students. Because of marine erosion, these fossils are just falling out of the cliff. Probably as we're speaking now, there are big fossils falling onto the foreshore. So we've got a huge tide and some really big waves. And, you know, these are the people who are collecting them and bringing them in. And it's so important that we have a museum, a, a focal point for, for the public to actually know they can bring things in, to get them identified, and hopefully, if they're important to science, to donate them. And, and also to have a, a, a wonderful experience for the children and, uh, and for education. The Isle of Wight is linking with universities, with Portsmouth just over the water, is a, an absolute perfect example of how the public, museums and academics should all work together. As a leading light in the field of paleontology, the University of Portsmouth carries out excavation work around the world. Nizar Ibrahim thinks it's one of the most exciting and evolving fields you can work in. I think in the public's perception, paleontology sometimes comes across a little bit like stamp collecting, right? You read about a new dinosaur found there and a new pterosaur and you kind of go like, okay, so if they found another one, now what, right? What I think is often not conveyed in you know, media articles is that really what paleontologists are doing ultimately is piecing together the most incredible, awe-inspiring story out there, the history of life on planet Earth, right? It's an incredible sequence of events. And it is the biggest story out there, hands down. Nothing comes even close. Nizar is a paleontologist and anatomist and a senior lecturer in paleontology here at the University of Portsmouth. It touches on some of the big fundamental questions we have. You know, where did all of this incredible diversity we see all around us come from? You know, what's the deep time history of our planet? How did fluctuations in climate affect life and ecosystems on our world? And this is, of course, very relevant today. Extinction events is another one, right? There's a lot of talk today about us being in the middle of a mass extinction. The only reason we even know what a mass extinction is, is because paleontologists identified these extinction trends in the fossil record and identified so-called mass extinctions. So paleontology is really very relevant to the present and also helps us plan for the future. I like the way also it not only lets you look at the history of life on Earth, which I think, as Nizar pointed out, is, is the best story that can be told, uh, and, and, and a story that we keep building on as well, we keep adding to that story, but also it helps us understand the nature and the dynamics of the planet. For example, it was paleontology 
that led people like Wagner realise that the continents had actually split apart. It also helps build, certainly for the last 600 million years, a really good guide to the evolution of the planet itself and the, the position of the continents, for example. I, I spent quite a lot of time teaching anatomy. So, you know, my background really is more on the biological side of things. So we would dissect human bodies for the students and I would tell them about the ancient origins of major anatomical structures in the human body, right? So a lot of the soft tissue I'm using right now to talk to you can be traced back all the way to ancient fish, right? There, you know, if you want to understand our back pain, you know, you have to understand the origins of bipedalism, you know, walking on two legs in, you know, nothing in our body makes any sense unless you really view it in this, this big picture. And so paleontology, you know, really informs a lot of things, including, you know, our own anatomy. So I think it's a, it's a really um, powerful and, and humbling experience. When you put it like that, studying fossils can seem like the most living and up-to-the-minute job there is. Nizar joined the team after years of working with Dave through other organizations, and he's been leading some incredible projects around the world. So, is it a glamorous job? It can be very, very glamorous. Uh, you go to some exotic locations where the cultures are very, very different from ours. Certainly working in Africa is a very different experience to working on the Isle of Wight, without a doubt. People think of Hollywood movies and, you know, going to far-flung corners of the world and going on these expeditions and on a treasure hunt and so on. I always tell people that the reality is far more exciting than any Hollywood movie could possibly be because it's all real, right? You do experience sandstorms and you have close encounters with snakes and, you know, and they're not CGI snakes or rubber snakes like on a film set. They're real, right? We experience flooding in the, in the desert. Um, I also did some field work in, in a, a very remote part of the Sahara in Niger where we're completely off the grid, right? And there it's like, you know, good luck with your phone or, you know, you, you go out there, you have a, an armed escort of 30 or so armed guards. You know, those are experiences that very few people have, right? Even in Morocco, we often go and work in military zones, which are just off limits to everybody. So it's just us and the soldiers. And you get to, to explore these magical, seemingly timeless places, right? I mean, the Sahara feels like a timeless place, but it's not. One of the things I really like about the Sahara is that it offers this amazing contrast, this um, overwhelming sense of deep time. Because you're in a desert, it's really dry and hot, and you know, you're always reaching for your water bottle. But then you pick up a little fossil off the ground, and it's a massive fish scale. And you realize that 100 million years ago, which is how all these fossils are, this was a very different kind of place. And then you pick up another thing, and it might be the tooth of a spinosaur, right? Big predatory dinosaur. And then you find a, an armor plate of a crocodile-like hunter. And all of a sudden, in your mind, you recreate this incredible lost world. And you see this massive river system, the River of Giants. That's a pretty magical experience. So even if you just find something like a tiny little scale, it's really humbling. And you essentially become a real-life time traveler. And it was here, in the Sahara, that Nizar and Dave had one of the most exciting discoveries of their careers. We excavated an animal that had been lost to science because it was destroyed. The only specimen that existed was in, was in Munich and it was destroyed in World War II. And so scientists had some books with some pictures and some text about this dinosaur, but no real material. One of the, the, the big 
treasures we were hunting in the Sahara was Spinosaurus. It's kind of the holy grail of dinosaur paleontology. We just had a brief glimpse of what this animal looked like. A few bones were described by a, a German paleontologist, Ernst Stromer, and those bones were destroyed in World War II. So we just had this, you know, we just have a few drawings of the bones, descriptions of the bones. We know that this animal had big, tall spines on its back, forming an incredible sail and a long, narrow snout, a bit like a crocodile. And we knew it was very big. So the bones suggested that this was an animal as big or even bigger than T-Rex. I always wanted to find a Spinosaurus, but, you know, people have been trying to find a, a new skeleton Spinosaurus for decades, right? As Dave just mentioned, you know, we have now and are still excavating the most complete skeleton of Spinosaurus. It's the only one in existence in the, in the world. This animal was even weirder and stranger than we could have imagined in our wildest dreams. Because we found out that this animal was essentially a river monster. It had a paddle-like tail that would have propelled it through the water. Crocodile jaws. It probably even had webbed feet. Really dense bone for buoyancy control. And that made this discovery even more exciting. Yes, it was a giant predatory dinosaur, the biggest of them all. In fact, it was bigger than T-Rex. But the most interesting thing about this animal is that it was a river monster because it was doing something that no other dinosaur was doing, and that is invade the aquatic world. We used to think that dinosaurs were, you know, land animals and never really did water, essentially. And here we are. So that was a really, really amazing moment, you know, when we realized what we had on our hands. That's just one expedition of many that paleontologists have been making to little excavated treasure troves around the world. So how have advances in technology allowed the science to accelerate our understanding of natural history? Technology has helped in so many ways. The invention of the CT scanner, which was first of all became routine in medical science, has now been applied very, very widely to paleontology. And a lot of paleontology departments, University of Portsmouth, for example, have a couple of CT scanners. We no longer have to prepare the fossils. <laughs> what was a very, very time-consuming job, if you had a very hard nodule and a delicate fossil inside, you needed a preparator to extract that fossil before you could even start to study it. But now you can put it through a CT scanner and the next day you've actually got an image of the fossil that was in there at a very high resolution, as though you were looking at it down a microscope. You can see it in 3D and it's a digital image manipulated on a computer and you can rotate it in the computer and you can look at all aspects of it. And that has revolutionised the way we look at fossils and the speed with which we can look at fossils as well. Um, some, some of the more delicate fossils would take a year to prepare out before you could seriously start studying it. And now, you, now you've got the data within, within a day or two. CT scanning is fantastic. We use it a lot. It has really transformed our discipline. And in fact, Portsmouth played a pivotal role in the early use of CT scanning for, for dinosaurs. But I think what's really exciting is that we can now use technology to answer questions we thought we'd never be able to answer, right? So, for example, some of my colleagues, led by uh, Yasmina Wiemann, who was then at Yale University, determined the color of a range of dinosaur eggs, right? So they're able to identify, you know, bluish eggs in animals similar to Velociraptor, you know, then they're somewhere speckled. And that's pretty amazing. And what they did is they used microspectroscopy. So essentially they were 
bouncing a laser off eggshell fossils. And that allowed them to analyze the molecular composition. And, and then they were able to look for pigments that are found in modern eggshells, right? There are things that we thought we'd never be able to figure out. And here we are, you know, using cutting edge technology, we can do it. Where COVID-19 has definitely caused setbacks for advancing some projects, Dave says that being able to collaborate easily with colleagues around the world has also meant that modern research can benefit from international talent and expertise. On our last but one field trip to Morocco, we made an incredibly exciting discovery. But in order to write it up, we needed a lot of field data. And that field data we have not been able to get for two years. And it's getting really very, very frustrating. It's not that I don't have anything to do. I've got lots and lots of fossils to write about. And my students have got plenty of material to work on, even though they don't get the, the full Moroccan fieldwork experience. But this one discovery that we've made is so spectacular that we just are itching, itching to get it written up and tell the world about it. I reckon I'm four Morocco trips down. I should be in Morocco now. And I had penciled in being in Morocco with my master's students. I'd also penciled in a trip in November. But every time I've just been about to leave, Morocco has closed its borders uh, and restricted foreign travel. There's a perception that paleontology was done by the richer nations and that the poorer and developing nations were losing out. But that's changing. And for example, we work in Morocco with, with Moroccan paleontologists and they're an integral part of the team. And uh, Morocco is getting more and more paleontologists and uh, the future for paleontology in Morocco is very, very bright. Dave and Nizar are staying tight-lipped about their exciting discovery until they can get back into the field. But Jeremy, on the other hand, was perfectly placed to carry out his research during the pandemic. This forced me to to actually just sort of go into a museum store facility and spend days and days and days there and i and i think because there's been there's been very little distraction it 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 really came to the forefront for me that it just sort of you know i had a sketchbook and pencil some calipers a ruler and a tape measure um and just sort of just looked at things and drew them and recorded them and photographed them and I think just by doing that with hundreds of bones, literally, it sort of taught me what the anatomy was in, in huge detail and, and allowed me to start identifying differences, which ultimately came out with uh, recently with a new species for me of Brystonia simonzi. So what's next for our Isle of Wight time traveller? What we're trying to look at on the Isle of Wight is diversity. So there's been a lot of work done looking at how diversity has changed over time. And it appears that in the early Cretaceous, around about 125 to 140 million years ago, there seemed to be a very low diversity. And on the Isle of Wight, we had this floodplain with, and we were looking at the Iguanodontians, and it was predominantly taken up by two, Iguanodon and Mantellisaurus. You know, when we find a bone on the Isle of Wight, 90% of the time it's going to be one of these two animals. This struck us as unusual because in the late Cretaceous, in an exactly similar floodplain undergoing increasing marine transgression, we were finding in Alberta and Canada in the Dinosaur Park formation 
the herbivores, the iguanodontians, were changing very rapidly. So on the Isle of Wight, we've got six million years of terrestrial deposits that were supposedly only being occupied by these two herbivores. And it really doesn't sound likely that that's the case. That's certainly a mystery to crack, and the team think the answer lies in better understanding the stratigraphy, that's the timescales of different types of rocks, that exist here. It's clear there's many millions of years of natural history yet to be uncovered. What secrets might be revealed? And who knows how those discoveries might deepen our understanding of planet Earth today? You can follow the team and more fascinating research at the website port.ac.uk slash research. On our next episode of Life Solved from the University of Portsmouth, we're out at sea again, this time with cold water swimming. Over the last 15 years, there's been a small rise in the number of people wanting to swim outdoors and found that they've had uh, some benefit from doing so. So how much benefit is occurring? What are the mechanisms that these benefits occur? And who benefits? Follow this podcast on your favourite app so you don't miss it. And if you like this episode of Life Solved, why not share it with a friend and start a conversation? See you next time.